Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another special episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with a very special guest, Phil Bonello, and we are here to talk about the Sovereign Individual Investment Thesis. Phil, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Eric. Really happy to be here. Big fan of the podcast. Awesome. So, so Phil, before getting into the piece, why don't we talk a little bit about uh, just a brief on on the background and the things that you've read that have informed the the piece, and and then we'll get into the thesis. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, the first piece is The Sovereign Individual, which is a book that was written in 1997. Uh, It really centers around the concept of the leverage of violence. Um, So uh, it it talks really about the physical world and how nation states have had this kind of monopoly over violence and scaling violence and how that has really uh, led to the centralization of power. Uh, As we move more into the information age, uh, that kind of centralization of power starts to deteriorate because uh, governments that have had a monopoly over the physical world now don't have as much control over the information world, right? Um, so that this is a, a concept that I found really interesting in the sovereign individual, and uh, um, that kind of helped to piece, piece together a thesis that I was starting to work on that was based on uh, kind of the idea of unchanging human motivations. And uh, that was inspired by Jeff Bezos, which I think, uh, you know, he was quoted as saying, um, I don't like to think about things that are going to change in the next 10 years. I think it's more interesting to think about things that are not going to change, right? And so, um, so I think he, he said, customers are never going to want slower delivery and higher prices, right? And so I started uh, thinking about a thesis from that perspective. Um, so, so the, the broad, um, the broad motivations that I use in, in this thesis are uh, drive to acquire, drive to defend, uh, drive to bond, drive to learn and drive to feel. And these are things that were, um, kind of borrowed from the book driven. Uh, you know, it, they, they think about things in a, in a fairly different context, more from an organizational standpoint. But I try to restructure that and think about uh, how does this apply to investing? Yeah. Uh, uh, Reed Hoffman and others have, have quoted the uh, seven deadly sins for a framework. Um, mm-hmm. That's similar, but, but, uh, but just a different, different base point. Yeah. Um, so let's, um, let's get into the logic of, of violence here. And I've heard also this term symbolic violence to mean uh, not just you know, f- physical violence, but also sort of the monopoly on truth. Um, the church mm-hmm. have it at one point, um, and then uh, and now sort of governments and nation states, uh, as well as other institutions, sort of get to determine our realities. And so, whoever yeah. is able to own that is able to exercise a different kind of authority, even if it isn't act physical. Yeah, absolutely, and and I think that's one of the main the main points of leverage, right? Uh, and in the book, talks a lot about. Uh, uh, the transition of, of power uh, from the church to kind of the Protestant church, uh, because uh, the printing press changed everything. It, tra- it changed uh, their control over information. And that's obviously something that we're seeing now. Uh, so within the thesis, I, I talk a little bit about education and how I see that as like one of the major driving forces of uh, wages and wage changes over the next you know, probably 10, 15, 20 years. We've already seen that a little bit because everybody has the same access to information. Uh, these large institutions no longer kind of have a monopoly, and you know it's getting harder and harder to justify paying you know fifty thousand dollars a year for an institution when you can learn a lot of what you might learn uh, in a traditional institution on YouTube, right? Um, and 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 when and when that becomes the case, then. Uh, you can hire people from different different jurisdictions uh, who may have lower living costs, and and that really changes that really changes a lot of things. It, it, it's kind of a cascading function. Education equalizes everything, so everyone can uh, kind of have the same uh, uh, same access to education. When when people can develop the same skills as uh, every 
when people can develop the same skills as uh, uh, people in developed countries, then they can provide work for uh, a lower cost. So, th so that brings down uh, that brings down the growth in developed countries while bringing up growth in uh, develop, uh, developing countries. Uh, the next the next phase of that is that revenue in these develop these developed countries, you know, like the U.S. start to starts to decrease, right? So if growth is going down, their their revenue from taxation is also going down. Uh, so then what happens is, okay, we need to increase our revenue somehow. Uh, we also need to increase growth somehow. So the first lever to pull, to pull is kind of uh, let's let's turn on the printing press. So um, pump money into the economy. Let's hopefully uh, grow the economy that way. Other way that you can grow your revenue is by increasing taxes, right? Um, so we're seeing both of these uh, trends develop right now in the U.S. and globally. Uh, U.S. we're seeing the emergence of MMT, uh, lower rates, um, potentially QE. Uh, we're also seeing the the wealth tax emerge and this uh, kind of battle against billionaires and big business. Uh, so, so then the kind of the next domino to fall is if if taxes are going to be increased, if uh, your money is going to be inflated, then how do you escape those trends? So. Uh, then we have digital money, right? And it was really interesting in, in the sovereign individual, uh, which was written, you know, 22 years ago, is that they accurately predict the rise of a digital money. Um, digital money allows people to then opt out of these inflationary forces, these uh, these taxation forces, and uh, so that's kind of like the final uh, the final piece to a lot of this. Um, with that, you can then cross borders much more easily. The exit cost of leaving a certain jurisdiction come down. Um, and when you can more easily leave jurisdictions and conduct global commerce, then it's um, then it becomes a much more competitive environment. Uh, nations have to control; uh, they have to compete over their their citizens. They have to treat them like customers, right? Uh, rather than kind of servants. In 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 <laughs> Uh, so more bi business friendly practices, smaller government interference, uh, when it, it just kind of follows intuitively because when you think about, okay, I have all this money, I want to get something done is, is your first instinct. Uh, I, I want to give it to the government, right? Most people look at governments as pretty inefficient forces, uh, highly bureaucratic. And so they're, they're just not efficient. Um, Singapore is a really good example of this. And again, mentioned in the sovereign individual 20 years ago uh, that they implemented really good business practices. Uh, they were low taxes and uh, they subsidized some of uh, some of this like business growth. And now 20 years later, you can see the effects of that. So I anticipate that a lot more nation states, a lot of, a lot of these sovereigns will, um, they'll, they'll try to reap the benefits of people leaving some of these developed uh, countries. Yeah, so raises a bunch of questions. So first is, it's my understanding that Singapore is also, uh, it's free market, but also sort of master planned um, and with, with sort of heavy, heavy hand from the government. What has their mm -hmm. government done particularly well? I mean, in my opinion, and, and I'm, not, I'm no expert on, on Singapore specifically, but I, I think just bringing taxes down and, and uh, making it kind of a, a haven is, is really appealing, right? If, if, also, if you're, if you're a, a billionaire and you don't, you don't want your money taken away, uh, that's something that's going to increasingly be uh, uh, in, in demand. Yeah. And what, um, so you mentioned it's intuitive that governments would start to compete um, and yet, or, uh, you know, business friendly practices. And yet in the US, for example, we see the opposite where we just mentioned MMT, QE, uh, the wealth tax, you know, if Elizabeth Warren becomes president, et cetera. And so what, when is there gonna be sort of behavior change? It's sort of like when you're, um, you know, a negotiation tactic is to go harder, but then you have, you, you realize that you're losing. And so you have to back, like when is, when is there gonna be backing off? <laughs> or is it not gonna happen? Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm not sure, honestly. Timing is really tough to to predict, but um, I, I think uh, you know people people right now are not worried about any of this stuff. 
uh, generally. Um, it, it's not it's not part of the uh, the everyday discussion. Like how how can I make sure that my assets aren't inflated away, and um, how how can I avoid taxation? Right. That's not part of for the for for the most part. That's not part of the conversation. Um, what happens, you know, with natural disasters and stuff is people buy insurance after those <laughs> those things happen, and so that's probably going to be largely the case here. Um, when the U.S. dollar really becomes uh, a poor store of wealth, uh, when taxes really get out of control, when uh, billionaires and big business really start to leave the country, then we'll probably see some kind of change. Um, but, but this is also part of part of the thesis that I tried to put together was was there's this um, currently there's a drive to acquire right which is pretty much greed uh, and that drives I think a lot of what's going on in our economy and and uh, consumer demands I think we're going to see a broad shift to uh, more of a, a, a drive to defend. So what I mean by that is uh, investing and using uh, defensive technologies. So I, I think of I think of Bitcoin as kind of a defensive technology in that it allows you to defend from seizure, it allows you to defend from inflation. Um, and then I look at like kind of the whole crypto world in the same fashion. It's all defensive technologies. Uh, someone recently termed it as dissident technology. Uh, that is really the application for these crypto applications, uh, but we don't. There, there's not a demand for that right now. Uh, when when we have really intense censorship, then I think we'll start to see that demand uh, grow. Uh, but but again, you know, it's a it's a tough. Uh, there there are technological demands that we have to overcome, uh, but it's also. It's also just a behavior change. We're used to outsourcing protection. Makes me think a couple of things. So one is that defensive technology you talk about, uh, cryptography and crypto more broadly, in the hands of China or something could be used for 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 attacking or, or increased centralization, right? It could be, but I think the the trend is that is that with with cryptography, you know, I, I can have in a good encryption scheme, I can have the same level of defense as a nation state. And I can defend myself against attack from a nation state, and that really that really flips things on their head. So you know, I can I can hold a billion dollars in Bitcoin, and I, I you know I, I I don't need to scale up my my operation. I can do it individually, and that's really that's really powerful. Yeah, and so let's unpack how that like let's get into detail how, how that could work because like I guess what I'm saying is. We haven't yet seen a government full-on attack of, of, of some of these technologies. You know, where would you store that? Much? Like, if you store it in Coinbase, they don't want to go to jail, and governments can threaten them. So, like, at some point, it's pretty hard to escape the the tentacles of, of of government. So, what does it look? Can you paint a picture of what it looks like in terms of where are you storing wealth? How are you transferring wealth? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, I, I completely agree with you, um, but. And, and that's why I think there's going to be a, a trend change. So from kind of these centralized uh, technologies, something like Coinbase, uh, to something more like, you know, holding your, these self-sovereign technologies. So I like things like local Bitcoins, payment services like OpenNode, BTC Pay, Zap, things that can happen uh, totally, totally independently. And no one's holding, uh, no one's holding your wealth. No one's controlling uh, the way that you spend it. Uh, you're 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 going from this outsourced protection model to really taking control into your own hands, and that's that's scary for a lot of people, right? With a lot of power, you you have a lot of responsibility. If you lose your keys or whatever, then that's a that's a big deal. So the user experience has to get way better for for these defensive technologies, for these self sovereign technologies. But that is that is the trend, right? Because I completely agree with you. Uh, Coinbase right now holds a ton of Bitcoin, tons of tons of ETH, and if the government were to go to them, they're probably going to comply and, and say, you know hand over all of that, all of that Bitcoin, all of that ETH. And I mean, what do they do, right? So, so that's a huge that's a huge problem. 
Yeah, it is interesting. You know, Chris Dixon in his post, I think 2018 or 2017, Why Decentralization Matters, he, he specifically mentioned that, hey, this isn't some, I don't know if you use these words, libertarian manifesto where we're trying to you know, decrease our our necessity, reliance on government. This is more about decreasing uh, centralization in internet companies, you know, Facebook, Amazon, the aggregators. And uh, what we're talking about is a little, is the opposite. Um, and what a lot of Bitcoiners are excited about is sort of the opposite. Are you uh, less interested in sort of, I guess, where is he wrong if you think he is? And are you less interested in the sort of um, decentralized, you know, the Facebook and, and the aggregators vision or, or is it both for you? Are they both connected? Yeah, you know, I think there are, uh, let's see. So, so services, I still think will be centralized. There's uh, in building products, there's, there's some benefit to having centralization, right? You can just move faster and you can uh, build new things faster. You don't have to talk to a lot of different people, but it's the, de it's the decentralization of assets. So data and money uh, being the big ones that are then kept, uh, I guess, self-sovereign. And the main use case for most of this technology, the, the big like 10X improvement, I would say, is, is not decreasing the rent assumed by some of these, uh, by something like Google or um, any kind of middleman. I think the, the biggest thing is censorship resistance. So I, I would disagree with uh, Chris Dixon in that, uh, I guess in that light, because I really think that the, the killer use case for all of this technology is to be able to use it outside of the control of anybody else. And, and that, is, that is what removing the middleman really does. Yeah. And so uh, you mentioned that this dissident technology, the use case for it requires a behavior change. Right now, people are just too comfortable. Um, yep. So is it in, what, what's going to bring about this behavior change? And is it in government's interest to just keep things on the status quo? Like, is government like going to shoot itself in the foot? Or, or why is that necessary? Why is the behavior change going to happen? What, what trends are, are leading it for that to happen? Yeah, you know, that's a big question, right? <laughs> Uh, we've seen a lot of money come into the crypto space and there's not a whole lot of user adoption. Uh, there is user adoption around speculation, right? That um, like all these decentralized finance applications, they're really uh, applications for increased speculation. Um, exchanges are doing really well. That's because there's demand for speculation. Uh, I think the technology still has a way, you know, there's a ways to go for a lot of these uh, a lot of these applications, a lot of these platforms and infrastructure. Um, but I think even more than that, people just, uh, there hasn't been enough censorship to force people to these censorship resistant type platforms. Um, and I think that's gonna be the driving force. I, I forget, I think it was in, or is it in, in Iran recently where there was a you know, 4,000% increase in a mesh technology, a mesh networking service. And, you know, that, that's a prime example in my mind of, uh, you know, demand really meeting the technology and yeah. And yeah, that, I, I think that's, that's yeah. Wh why is censorship on the rise as opposed to it's opposite? Uh, because I think more information is, is kind of not controlled by these centralized authorities. So, uh, you do whatever you you mentioned it at the beginning, right? You do whatever you can to kind of control control that voice, and it's becoming it's becoming really interesting because uh, some of the information is being distributed through these centralized platforms, right? So the question becomes difficult for someone like Twitter: what do they censor and what do they not censor? And who's the final authority on censorship there? Um, you know, it goes, it goes both ways. Uh, you know, with a censorship resistant platform, you're going to have things that a lot of people probably don't want to see, but, uh, you know, that's, that's freedom. Right. Yeah. And the, let, let's, let's zoom out, uh, and, and go back to the logic of violence. Can you give sort of a brief historical overview of how that uh, the logic of violence has, uh, evolved over time with different sort of technological revolutions? You know, one quote that he talks about in the book is basically says, hey, when uh, defense is hard, um, you know, government's going to 
take advantage of that. Um, when, when defense is easy, there, and there will be increasing centralization. When defense is easy, it will be uh, less centralization. Um, and talk about how in different periods of history that, that has played out. Yeah, so um, I'll mention a couple. The first is you know, the, agri the first agricultural re revolution in that farming uh, brought, brought like the advent of uh, uh, physical scarcity, right, and, and property rights. And so when people started to have property rights, they started to have to defend that property. And so then you think about, okay, well, what's the best way to defend my property? Well, the biggest guy in town might, might come around and just demand that he gets payment or else he's going to beat you up. Right. So that's like kind of the first case of coercion. Um, so that guy comes around town and he, he says, okay, well, I'm, I'm either going to beat you up or you're going to pay me a tax. Right. And so then he has a, he has a business around that. He gets a bunch of other people. And now he has a group of a hundred people who kind of control the violence and the protection in that town. Uh, the next kind of phase I think was that we started to see uh, these feudal societies kind of develop uh, around that same idea. Uh, the next step was really the church. Uh, the church controlled all the information, as we talked about before. Um, information controlled the way that people thought, the way people acted, and they were actually able to control a lot of that violence. Um, when there was less asymmetry of information uh, due to the print, printing press, they, they started to lose a lot of that, a lot of that uh, uh, power of coercion, right? They, they controlled a lot of the violence. They controlled, uh, they controlled the big heavy hitters, the forces. Um, the Industrial Revolution even made it a stronger force because we had these, uh, these weapons of essentially mass destruction and uh, really effective tools of violence that, if used at scale, really can control the world, right? And I, I don't think it's a mistake that the United States rose to the place that it is today, right? Uh, um, for better or worse, they had, they were really effective at at administering violence uh, in, in the right ways. And so now in the inf information age, uh, there's, no more, uh, there's no more monopoly on information. There's a decreased monopoly on violence uh, for the primary reason that less and less value is in the physical world and more of it is in the digital world. So if more value is now in the digital world, uh, governments can't necessarily control that world it's outside of their realm. And so the more that we go into the digital world, the less, the less uh, control governments have over that digital realm, and really the more uh, freedom individuals have to create their own kind of societies. One thing I wanna get your perspective on is that as technology has improved and we have seen new technological revolutions, uh, there's often been this promise of decentralization, particularly as it relates to the internet, but in fact, things have gotten more centralized. Governments have gotten more powerful, companies have gotten more powerful, and they use these technological advantage to, advantages to consolidate. Uh, and that's sort of the story of humanity. W why is this time different? Yeah, uh, so to that point, I think things can get a lot worse before they get better, and I, I think they probably will, uh, because then that'll make people, uh, It'll, it'll force a behavior change, essentially. Uh, but encryption is, is really the, the tool that allows people to uh, protect themselves. And that protection is, is really the key factor in, in all of this. Because I think, like I mentioned before, is I can now protect myself just as well as a, a large organization can, with, just with the tools of encryption. And... and, and so, you know, maybe services are still centralized, but it's, it's the assets, it's the data, um, your money that can be held uh, on your person, right? You know, I, if, I, if I know the private key, then I'm the only one that can access my money. And, so, yeah, so I think that that's really the main, uh, kind of the main thing that tilts the logic of violence and uh, changes the, the power of coercion that, uh, states and even large organizations have over the individual. Um, and you talk about behavior change, but you also talk about driven, which talks about, hey, um, you know, we have these base desires over time and they, they don't really change. 
How do you think about behavior change in, in light of that? Yeah, so, so, so I think it's really important to think about where user demand is coming from. Especially, this, this became really relevant in crypto because uh, all these applications, all this money was pouring in and there just hasn't been adoption. So it's, it's useful to think about why do people care? Right. And, and what does this technology provide that no other technology does provide? And to me, it's, it's the ability to protect, protect. You can protect yourself uh, more easily, more cheaply, more effectively uh, than you could before. But like I said, you know, people don't really care about that. And it's probably going to get worse before it gets better. People are going to have to lose a lot of money before they really want to protect the money that they have. Uh, just kind of, just kind of the way things go. Totally. So now let's get into an investment thesis. We've talked about what's going to happen. Now let's talk about how do we get rich off it? Yeah. <laughs> so, so I, I think, uh, you know, the first point is, uh, information technology, uh, is, is an equalizing force on a global scale. And this, this is a pretty pretty well-known thought, right? Uh, a lot of people make investments in this space uh, around that around that idea. Uh, education is increasingly going to be online. Uh, if the workforce is global, then how do you uh, how do you kind of think about remote remote work tooling? Uh, if location is less valuable, then what location then uh, what what does become valuable, right? So, so I think there's an interesting idea of uh, um, it, like something like New York City, right? If if more work is happening remotely, then the value of New York City decreases because you know they can't demand the high the high property uh, high property rates. So so then those people move elsewhere. So where do they move? Uh, why do they move there? What kind of services do, do they need? So you kind of just think about the flow of, of people because this 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 thesis is uh, thesis of uh, uh, kind of globalization uh, helps you understand just how things are starting to shift and starting to move and so it's um, just just really supply and demand and, and how that how those uh, scales are going to kind of tip so like one vertical which I mentioned in in the thesis is education and so all education services really need to be rebuilt in, in some form or fashion. Um, and I think that probably the key one is accreditation. When you think about institutions right now, why, do, why can they demand $200,000 for a tuition? It's, it's, less, it's less about the education that they're providing and more about the, the letters, right? Um, MBA or whatever, your PhD, and, and that's really what it's about. It's that accreditation. So accreditation services are definitely uh, a really interesting area of study. Uh, you know, you've seen esports come up. Uh, really anything that can be done without having to be in a certain location. This is, that's kind of the thesis, right? Uh, customized media feeds and uh, just outsource work. I thought I saw a really interesting idea about uh, there are tools for remote work, but how about tools for um, uh, rem remote team building, right? And, and that's just kind of the idea of bringing your team together and maybe playing like some sort of video game. Uh, so just all of these things that make, make it seem like you are in the same location, but you're not. And do you think people are going to live inside of cities or outside of cities? Uh, I think the value of cities will decrease substantially. So I'm, I'm not sure it's, you know, binary like that, but uh, when, when people can't pay, again, you know, in, in, the, in developed countries, as wages decrease, people just won't be able to pay for those, uh, those type of living, living habits, right? And so you have to go somewhere else. It, it, it just forces your hand. And so, so there will definitely be people who are like, yeah, you know, I, I like living in a really densely populated area and I can afford it. Um, and so I, I can see that trend play out, but I, I think it's more um, the specifics of, of how that is, that is going to play out. I'm, I'm not so sure, but I think the trend is to kind of disintermediate 
One of the other things you, you had here on your doc was marketing and biz dev for nation states. What do you mean by that? And I'm also curious if you're, uh, what you, where your take is on charter cities. And, and thinking about this thesis, I was kind of like, well, you know what? There's going to be a, a real demand for business-friendly jurisdictions uh, and places with uh, uh, low taxes, and uh, they're going to be friendly to, to friendly to wealthy people, essentially. Uh, because in a lot of other places, they're just getting their money taken away, right? So uh, how, can, how could I or how could a group of people work with some of these sovereigns that may be open to change, changing their taxation practices, their business practices to, uh, to get some of this business, right? <laughs> uh, if, if Google and Apple and Facebook are going to get bullied, then how, how much of that bullying are, are they going to take until they go to another jurisdiction that might have a really skilled workforce and uh, uh, just you know, more business-friendly practices? Can you talk about, a little bit about the differences of, of, how, uh, of the industrial era and the information era and how uh, education uh, needs to respond to, to either? Yeah, so I, I think this is, again, kind of back to the idea of the value of location. Uh, in, in, the, in the industrial area, you, you have a lot of people that, that have to work in, you know, for, for example, a factory, right? And, and there's a lot of value in everybody being in, in the same place. That's no longer the case. Uh, even taking it a little further with 3D printing, uh, you may, may be able to decrease the value of location even further. Uh, you don't even need uh, these factories and you can, uh, you can manufacture things on demand. That's a little further down the line, but you know, you can kind of, you can kind of see the, the idea forming. And then with information, you don't need to be in the same place. You know, it's, it's a kind of a simple, simple thesis, simple idea that uh, you no longer have to be in the same place to provide value. And so if that's the case, then where do you want to go? Where can you retain the most value that you, uh, that you earn? Um, yeah, it, it's kind of an interesting thing because individuals now have more leverage than ever, right? You can sit in your living room and you can organize a company or a business and you can, you can bring in a billion dollars a year, maybe, you know, just, just from organizing people all around the world. So entrepreneurs and investors have more leverage than they ever have before. But I think the common worker uh, probably has more competition than he or she ever has before. In the future, do you think that there will be thousands of Singapores and Hong Kongs and Israels or you know, governments or countries will consolidate? Or what would be sort of the, um, how will that look? So yeah, I think, I think there will be a lot uh, I would, I'm not free. There would be more free competition, right? Not, I was about to say fair, but I don't, I don't necessarily believe that, but uh, it'll be more free. And so there'll be more competition over uh, cost, customers, which are really citizens uh, just because exit costs are so low. If I, if I, you know, I, I live somewhere, they raise taxes. Okay. Well, I don't want to live here anymore. If you're going to take another 10% of my money, I'm just going to go next door they're providing a better service. They're more efficient. I'm going over there. So I guess the answer to that is, is yeah, I think there will be a lot of really business-friendly and wealth-friendly uh, jurisdictions. I mean, free competition usually leads to consolidation, right? Yeah, yeah. And M&A, um, you know, and monopoly over time almost. So it's just interesting to think about in the context of... Yeah, um, yeah. No, that, that is a really interesting idea. I mean, so, so then I, I guess it, it depends. Can a larger... Can a larger jurisdiction provide services uh, better? You know, like does the scaling, the scaling land increase the uh, the ability to provide services? And I think I think traditionally that's probably been true. Uh, you know, you 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 have more people, you can build a bigger army. You have uh, uh, more, you have a uh, you have more power, right? And so you you're more effective in your coercion. And, uh, the, you know, the big trend here is that land is less, uh, the land in the physical world are less important and it's more reliant on the digital. I want to transition a little bit into money because the promise of, of Bitcoin is, is digital money. Where are we right now um, and, and, and where's it going? 
how, what's your framework for for evaluating you know where we've come and, and where what's next yeah you know fiat money has never worked so uh <laughs> i think uh never worked uh, in what sense and that has never retained its value so i think the best the best example we have right now is uh the pound which is which you know is deflated 99.5% over 300 some years uh re- relative to, to to gold i think and um when you think about the us dollar since 1971 it's really it's been 48 years of a free floating dollar so it's not all that battle tested right um and this plays into the broader thesis of uh, slowing growth within uh, a developed country like the U.S. and uh, with a with a large welfare state and, and slowing growth, you have to print money to subsidize growth. And the incentives really are in place uh, for the U.S. and for most countries around the world to print money and can you know really continue this this party. So, so right now the role for Bitcoin and the role for digital money is, is speculation. Everybody, uh, everybody's like on exchange, they're, you know, on BitMEX trying to, trying to make money. They're just trying to make money. There are a select few people, I would say, within the crypto space who um, really are here for the, the, uh, the underlying values, the protection, the defensive technology, trying to escape inflation. Uh, trying to uh, trying to escape taxation, trying to escape asset seizure, um, but the general public isn't quite there yet, and so it's. I think it's going to be one of those things that uh, most most people will transition when when it's too late, uh, right? The the idea of buying insurance after a disaster. You uh, you mentioned uh, fiat's never worked. Why don't you give a brief historical overview? of sort of, uh, you know, when we were on the gold standard, what that was like, why we got off the gold standard, um, and what the effects uh, have been. Maybe we could do the US. Yeah, um, so throughout history, we've gone through all, we've tried out a lot of different monies, whether it's uh, rye stones or seashells or copper, uh, and we kind of landed on gold uh, for a good reason. Gold, more than any other asset that humans have tried, has been pretty resistant to inflation. Uh, it's had like a stock-to-flow ratio, typically of about two percent uh, growth on an annual basis, and so it, it's held its purchasing power relatively well. Uh, the U.S. Uh, the primary the primary reason for you know getting off the gold standard is is to to spend to spend money, right? And and that that's that's the reason that it, uh, everyone who's ever controlled money has, has done the same thing. Because if you, if you can control the money supply, you will control the money supply. And uh, you're probably not going to decrease it because you control it. So uh, Is the justification that hey, we were in times of war and in order for us to win, and, you know, we, we needed to spend and, and we did win and that was amazing for the U.S. and consolidated power. And so we should be grateful that we did that. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. You know, it, it, it worked. It worked well for the U.S. Uh, and and for a while, we were able to keep uh, the money supply under control. And then in, in 2008, it got pretty crazy. And so uh, you, you can look at the money supply chart and it's a nice, it's nice, uh, you know, two to three percent. And then in 2008 and with quantitative easing, the money supply quadrupled. And and that's a that's a pretty scary idea that you can hold you can hold a dollar and a dollar is not really a dollar, you know. And so so that's where this idea of uh, kind of a non-sovereign hard cap supply digital money comes into into play. You can get out of that regime, get out of that paradigm. Yeah. And explain for listeners who aren't familiar with quantitative easing, uh, how do we make what is it? How do we make sense of, of what's happening? Yeah, I think the simplest way is just. Uh, uh, injecting injecting a large amount of money liquidity into into the system and hoping that it flows down into uh, into all aspects of daily life and so uh, uh, essentially it, it makes it makes uh, lending and borrowing much easier 
uh, when, when that's much easier and cheaper, then people tend to take on more, uh, more debt and they spend more and that's supposed to fuel the economy. And I mean, since 2008, you know, stocks are up, right. And, and, uh, that's a, that's a key metric that people look at. And so, um, what can we expect in terms of like, if we think that, well, let me zoom out for a sec. So, um, how do you think about how many, you know, currencies there could be in, in practice? Is there going to be consolidation towards one or is there going to be different main currencies for different use cases? How, how do you see this playing out? Yeah. So I look at, I look at money as uh, a communication network and communication networks tend to, uh, you know, consolidate and they they tend to monopolize. And so, uh, I see, I see Bitcoin, I see digital money in the same respect. Uh, there are certain qualities that these digital monies hold and uh, that's, that really starts to build a narrative, build a, uh, in, in a way, a religion uh, that people start to follow. And what's really important about Bitcoin right now is, is this idea of the intolerant minority. There, there's a really strong belief in, in what Bitcoin stands for. And really when you're investing in Bitcoin, that's what you're investing in. Uh, because the, these protocols can change whenever, right? It's, it's really the people who are upholding the values of the protocol. And if, if, the, if the people uh, who are the intolerant minority of, the, of that protocol aren't aligned with you, then you might come back in 10, 15 years and the thing that you invested in is completely different. Um, and so I think when looking at Bitcoin, so first of all, I think we'll probably consolidate around one or two monies or something, you know, it'll follow like a power law distribution. And, uh, when, when looking at Bitcoin, a lot of people don't like it because it moves slow and, uh, it's very rigid. Um, and the people, the people in the community tend to be, uh, really mean. And when I, when I see those things, those are, those are really features to me, features of, of, of Bitcoin as a, as a protocol, as a money, as a community. Uh, because I know that when I come back in 10 years, Bitcoin is still going to pretty much be the Bitcoin that I knew before. And the values that I, uh, that, that I really wanted to see in my money are still the values of Bitcoin. What do you say to the argument that, uh, hey, it, it, you know, the first search engine that uh, wasn't Google, the first social network wasn't Facebook. Uh, you know, why is it necessarily that the first, you know, uh, Bitcoin like uh, currency is going to be the, the winner? Yeah, I think that defensibility is in, uh, it, it's, in it's, it's in a lot of things. It's in the community, it's in the liquidity, it's in the infrastructure that's built around it. Uh, you know, scalability is, is an issue. Uh, sustainability of mining is an issue and, and kind of the incentive structure. But but more than anything, what what Bitcoin allows is uh, and provides is assurances like ledger assurances. So you you know that every entry in that ledger is going to be there when you you know come back and and uh, you can verify all of that. Uh, so so more than anything, it's just an entry system, uh, and it, and that entry system allows you to opt out of the traditional uh, government uh, government monopolized money. Yeah, and and, and that, that's his, that's a sole purpose, you know. Right, and and so how, how do you compare this sort of store value use case with sort of the utility or or medium of exchange use case in, in cryptocurrencies more broadly, or how should we understand that trade off? Or yeah, so so when I look at when I look at the cryptocurrency space, I separate assets into productive assets and non productive assets. Bitcoin is a non productive asset, and I think uh, when we and I think there won't be all that many non productive digital assets, uh, unless they are very unique in some way, like a digital, a digital art or, you know, something like that. Uh, but when you think about, uh, non-productive money is like medium of exchange tokens. Most of those will, will, uh, go away. It's this idea of, uh, Gershom's law, which is bad money drives out good, uh, bad money being what nobody wants and what, uh, what can easily be inflated. And that bad money starts to get tossed around like a hot potato. And then that good money, that good, that, that money that is really valuable is stored away, right? Every time you get some of that good money, you're, you're putting it 
uh, under your bed. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and then there are productive assets. So in, in the digital world, just like in the physical world, you have cash flow producing assets. And uh, so a really good example of that is, is Augur, you know, a prediction market. And when you, when you stake rep, you get a, an exogenous cash flow in ETH proportional to the amount of uh, the rep token that you staked. So, so when, you, when you look at valuation uh, methodologies within the crypto space, you can, uh, you can you look at them broadly in the same way that you, you do traditional valuation methods. Um, with, with productive assets, you can use a discounted cash flow, right? Um, and then with non-productive, uh, yeah, so productive assets, discounted cash flow, non-productive assets, it's just really pricing. And you can try to look at where market demand's coming from and you have to, it's really just a, it's really just a, uh, demand and supply for, for non-productive assets. Yeah. And, um, so, uh, can you say more, what are the best valuation models for, for, for these assets or uh, what are the different versions of them? Well, so for, uh, you know, I, I built, I built a bunch of spreadsheets that are just, uh, discounted cash flows for different tokens. And so, you can look at the margin that's assumed on some of these protocols. So I think Augur's is like a 3% margin. So uh, this idea of not having a, um, taking out the middleman and uh, there's no rent seeking is kind of false, right? There's still, there's still a, a margin assumed on, on these networks. And that margin goes to the people who are providing this type of distributed work. Uh, so that, you, you can use that framework to understand the, the value, the cash flow that goes into some of these tokens. And then for non-productive assets, it's a little bit more difficult. And I, I would say you, you can't actually value them, but you can try to price these assets. And so uh, with, with Bitcoin, uh, for instance, I look at uh, uh, realized capitalization, which is essentially the opportunity cost of every uh, Bitcoin that's ever moved. Um, I look at on-chain volume, I look at hash rate. These are just kind of health metrics that, that help me understand whether, uh, whether the fundamental Bitcoin network is keeping pace with the price of, uh, with the price of the asset. What's sort of the bull and bear case for Ethereum as you see it? Um, and where, yeah, you so, yeah, so the, the bull, like the, the big bull case would be that, uh, people start using ETH as money. Uh, maybe DeFi becomes this really, this really big moat, and ETH is collateral in all of these systems, uh, and then ETH wins the money use case, right? And that's that's kind of a holy grail because it's looked at as a hundred trillion dollar plus use case. Uh, the bear case is is that it it loses the money use case and. Uh, is is then subjected to be a, a productive asset. And uh, when I look at productive assets in the space, they can still be valuable, but they are working uh, off of a, an assumed margin, right? There's a there uh, when people provide work to the net uh, to a given network, they expect a certain amount of fees coming back, and uh, that's the margin on the system. That's the cost to use the system. Uh, and that that valuation is far far lower than uh, a money. Totally. Are there any other potential contenders that you're you think are exciting or have a chance for for money? Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, so I like Bitcoin, obviously. Uh, Decred is probably my second favorite uh, because it it offers uh, a, a different type of uh, security model. But, but for the same purpose of uh, really, really strong assurances, right? So when I, when I look at a money, what I want is uh, the absolute highest possible assurances that it's going to continue to be that uh, good money. And by good money, I mean uh, it's able to track uh, value in a ledger, essentially. Talk about the, the promise of, of governance uh, tokens generally, or governance projects and, um, what we've sort of seen thus far. So th I think there's a, there's a lot of interesting work to do in, in governance, in the whole governance space. Uh, what, what a lot of these models boil down to though, is kind of a plutocracy of, of sorts um, where you can, you can buy your boats 
Um, and you know that 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 could be fine for some for some systems. Uh, what there's a really interesting model which is called a futarchy, uh, which is essentially uh, instead of instead of voting, you're betting. So uh, it's it's this idea of like putting your money where your mouth is. If you, if you if you believe in a certain uh, idea, uh, then instead of voting for it, uh, bet on it. And if that if that idea is fulfilled, then you'll receive a, a reward, right? Um, I think that's a pretty interesting model. Uh, Robin Hansen is kind of the guy who's uh, pioneered that that thinking. Uh, and there are a few projects like Tezos and a really small project called the Mobio that are playing around with the idea of futarchy. Why don't we think that uh, prediction markets have uh, have taken off yet? Because these centralized services are still pretty good. Like I, I can go on Bovada right now and I can place a sports bet. Um, I'm not sure. I probably have a, a fairly low limit on how much I can bet, but they work pretty well. I do think that prediction markets are really a, they're one of the killer potential use cases uh, for crypto uh, because there are a lot of, it's essentially just a derivatives market, right? And uh, there's a lot of design space there and a lot of stuff that will need to exist outside of the realm of uh, government intervention. The uh, But I'm more curious about, like, outside of sports, I don't know if people are betting on stuff. Sports politics. Just generally? Yeah, yeah. Like, Futarchy well, relies on people caring enough to bet. For sure. Yeah, I mean, people probably aren't betting enough. Uh, but derivatives are a massive market, right? Um, and And when you think about uh, a prediction market, if it's really set up perfectly, then it can be the source for all these derivatives. Yeah. In, in one of your blog posts, you mentioned that uh, you you quoted Jeff Bezos in an old interview. He said that he, Jeff knew that the internet was uniquely suited for selling books as opposed to other goods. And then you asked, what are decentralized networks uniquely suited for? Do you, yep. do you have an answer to that? Or a hunch? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, censorship resistant, uh, censorship resistance applications, right? Yeah. Like this idea, this, this idea of dissident technology, yeah. um, that's, that's what they're uniquely suited for. Looking forward, what do you think is going to be sort of the biggest milestone or, or turn or sort of watershed moment in the crypto space in the next couple of years? I'm really excited for Urbit and Blockstack uh, style applications, things where your data runs uh, or your data remains local and applications then run local. Um, so, uh, yeah, Blockstack and Urbit are super interesting from that perspective uh, because, it, you know, think about how, how all, all of our data is just out there. And when, when and there's a really big paradigm change that needs to happen uh, for users to completely own their data. And that's a technology. That's a technology change. Uh, my guest today has been Phil Bonello. Uh, Phil, thank you so much for, for coming to the podcast. Yeah, had a great time, Eric. Thanks a lot for having me. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst.